Well, we, we got plenty to cover this morning, and so I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dive in. God, thank you so much for your word, uh, a treasure that we do not deserve and uh, have received with really no effort on our own, own part, God. You've uh, decided to speak to us uh, of your own will, and you use faithful servants over the years to give us your word even in our own language and what a a blessing that is that uh, we can hear from you uh, really in in an amazing way that has never been possible like this at any point in history Um, your word is so readily available and yet we still need uh, you we need you to meet with us we need your help to understand to believe to come to your word with hearts that are eager to hear from you, um, to really uh, charge ourselves with with the wrong where we must, and to look to you for help to change where where you say that we must. And so we pray that you would meet with us this morning uh, through your word as we look at what you are doing currently in the lives of those who believe, and we pray that we would be encouraged to hear from you once again and spurred on to pursue you, to pursue one another in all the right ways. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Uh, first things, does, does everybody uh, have the notes for this morning um, off the back table? Great. And I know... It's uh, some of our first time. Does everybody have the, the blue chart that we're gonna gonna walk through? Nicholas, I don't think you have. Yeah. Anybody else need a blue chart? Okay. All right, last week we talked about the unregenerate man, and so this will, we'll just start here again by way of review. This chart was uh, developed by the elders in an effort to describe uh, what is so crucial to understanding as a part of this class. Just what do we need to know about, as believers, what do we need to know about where we've been, who we've been, um, where we are currently, and where God is bringing us ultimately. And this chart in great detail just lays that out for us. And so as you open up the chart on the left panel, what we discussed uh, last time was the unregenerate man. How long do I have, by the way, Matt? We need to be done by... 20 minutes. 20 minutes. (laughs) Nothing's getting done. You guys for 75. All right. Cool. So we'll be finished about 8.30. (laughs) Um, So the unregenerate man, where we started, and we'll just revisit uh, a passage or two just to remind us of of what's true. Uh, Go to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be flipping... 
sort of all over this morning. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul does the same thing that we're trying to do this morning in Ephesians 2. He reminds these believers of who they used to be prior to faith in Christ. And in verse 1, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's a succinct description of every unbeliever. Prior to Christ, there is absolutely zero spiritual life present. Dead. The unbeliever can do nothing for themselves, spiritually speaking. They cannot please God. They lack faith. Uh, The arena where their deadness is located is trespasses and sins. And though they're alive physically, they're, they're walking, that's being done according to the course of this world, not according to God, holiness, what God requires, truth. That is the unregenerate man you have on, on the left panel. That picture, again, is you have a, a, a figure with an outline around that figure, to illustrate the inner self as well as the external body, okay? For the unbeliever, everything that happens within them and the part of them we can't see, their soul, mind, spirit, heart, the only thing that happens there, which is why it's all dark on on the diagram, is sinful. It is darkness. It is wicked, evil. Every thought the unbeliever thinks, evil. Every motive that they have, only evil. Every desire, every uh, choice that they make, those, are thing, those things are always only evil. And then what manifests from the inner self, which is why you have a dark uh, outline around the unregenerate man is only ever evil. So the things he does with his mouth, the things he does with his hands, the things he does with his feet, even as Paul describes those body members in Romans 3, right? The, uh, with their lips they deceive, um, the venom of asps is under their lips, that with their tongue they deceive, um, their feet are swift to shed blood, right? He's describing the external members. So every, everything that's sinful inside manifests itself, or all the sin inside, in various ways manifests itself in the external actions, um, the choices he makes in, in other things. Those things never please God. So, and we mentioned this last week, take the uh, unregenerate man who does charitable deeds or things that benefit fellow men, right? Parents that in a, a earthly sense love their children. They provide for them. They enjoy them. They have fun. Uh, unbelieving moms 
nurse their children. <laughs> Unbelievers adopt children. Um, in, in Matthew 7, uh, provided commentary on that. Jesus says the gifts are good, but the person giving it is what? Evil. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts. Um, and so even though those things may be helpful, we can give good things, we can, on a human level, benefit one another. The point is, before God, those things don't please him. Apart from faith, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, apart from faith, it is impossible to please God, Paul says in Romans fourteen twenty three. And so... Everything that's coming from a polluted fountain, the polluted fountain of the unbeliever, uh, what Solomon calls in Proverbs 4.23, the springs of life that's coming from the heart. If the heart is polluted, it's only always evil ever. Then everything that comes from it is evil. If you had a, a polluted fountain, then it doesn't matter which way you send a spring of water from the polluted fountain, the water is going to be and those springs polluted. And that's the point. That's the unregenerate man. You, Christian, were just that before God saved you. You never did anything good. You never pleased God for a millisecond before this event that you see on the right side of that leftmost panel. Regeneration. The new birth. That, as we've said, is an event not a process it's either happened it's either taken place or it hasn't right uh, regeneration also known as being born again that is uh, something that you have as much participation in as you did your first birth your, your natural physical birth right you didn't ask to be born you didn't uh let your mom, the doctor, know it's time now, I'm ready, you have my permission, right? None of that happened, which is why it's a fitting analogy for what happens spiritually to us when God saves a person. Um, conversion happens at God's decision. When he's ready, he causes it. Not that he doesn't use means, but you don't participate, uh, we looked at this last time. Go back to James chapter 1. Or actually, go to, go to John 1. Maybe that's a better, better starting place. John chapter 1. Verses 12 and 13 in John 1 say this. But as many as did receive him, that is, who received Jesus, unlike the Jews who rejected him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. That's adoption. Even to those who believe in his name, right? The, the ones who believe are the ones who are adopted, are the ones who receive him. But verse 13 says that the ones who receive him, the ones who are children of God, the ones who believe in him, were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. 
But how? Of God. God causes the new birth. God causes the new birth. Everything wrong with you? In an instant is radically different because of God. Turn a few books uh, to the right to 1 Corinthians. A similar statement is made by Paul when he does uh, the same thing as John by attributing everything right with us to God alone. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Starting in verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. The Corinthians did not have much going for them on a human level. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the, the wise of the world. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, again, in a worldly sense. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. You'll notice verse 27. You didn't have anything going for you, but God chose. Verse 27, again, God has chosen. And then in verse 28, God has chosen. God, the choice was his. Could it be any clearer? Before you, you had anything going for you, God chose, God chose, God chose. Again, uh, continuing in verse 28, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that, that are and all for this reason. Not so that you would uh, be born again and realize how great you are, how much you had to contribute, how much potential you had locked inside of you and all you needed was God to unleash your, your hidden potential, right? But why has God chosen people like us with nothing to contribute, nothing uh, to give to God? Verse 29 tells us, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption again so that just as it as it is written let him who boasts boast in the lord why has god chosen to save in this way in a way where you don't contribute anything and this is the difference between christianity biblical true christianity and all false religion genuine biblical christianity leaves man with no cause for boasting and that's the goal. That's what God is after. God created all things for his own honor, fame, and glory. And salvation is his way of getting just that. His, his fame, his glory. And so he leaves men with nothing to boast in. God chose, God chose, God chose. So that he's the one who gets the glory. And when he saves us even for this event of regeneration, right? The most essential thing we needed, the first thing we needed to happen to us so that we could respond in faith, so that we could 
then uh, respond in obedience, God is wholly responsible for that. And so that changed everything for us. If we're Christians, that event. In an instant, we went from blind, spiritually speaking, we went from spiritually dead with no life in us to then alive in Christ, raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places. And then all of these things that you see at the bottom of the chart are just true for you. Uh, in the regeneration event, the gospel came to you and in an instant, God regenerated you, causing you to believe the gospel finally. Even if you had heard it in times past, you finally woke up and believed it for the first time. And all of those bullet points, the new birth, you had new life, you became a new creation in Christ. That was true. You were positioned in a positional sense, moved from one category to another. That's sanctification. You were set apart, pulled out of the world in that instant and set apart for God's purposes. A positional sanctification happened. Justification is true for you. Declared righteous, the judge has, even though you're a sinner, declared you anyway righteous before him. Uh, imputation, you took on the righteousness of Christ, had no more sins to be, to be uh, found guilty for. A adoption, you became a child of God. You were united with Christ. Expiation was true for you. The guilt of your sin, the, the uh, guilt before God was removed. You have no more wrath of God abiding on you. You were redeemed, reconciled, forgiven. Uh, your old man has been crucified with Christ. That's just true for you. You didn't have to work to earn any of those things, God made them true and he's responsible for them. And it doesn't matter whether you're a, a believer for 80 years or 80 seconds, right? This is just, both these things are equally true. They don't become more true the longer you're following Christ. They are just true from day one and they're just as true the last day that, that uh, you're alive on earth. Um, we call those the positional realities for the Christian. Those are just the things that are positionally true, uh, grace realities, things that have been made real for you by God's grace alone. And so that event of regeneration really ushers us into this completely new life in Christ, which is what we have on the middle panel, right? And we've uh, tried to illustrate that with this uh, now figure changing colors in the middle there. So you've got three different figures to illustrate. Um, you'll, you'll notice that the gray, right? If you, if you look back on the left, he's dark gray. Regeneration happens. He's a little bit lighter because now he's got a new life inside of him. Um, not only are, are things positionally true of him as a believer, but he's actually different inside. Now he finds himself having new desires. And this is all of our experience as a believer, right? We can all testify, yeah, that, that actually happened. I can remember when I used to like doing that stuff and then I just woke up one day and it's like the world was different for me, right? 
I didn't love the same things. I didn't want the same things. Things that had never bothered me before. Now I feel guilty for doing those same things. So he's a little bit lighter on the inside. Um, his motives are different. His desires are different. His thoughts have changed to some degree. And then if you've been a believer for some length of time, you not only remember who you used to be, right? For most of us, I remember how evil my thoughts used to be and then it changed in an instant for me on one day. But I can look over the past, however long that I've been a believer, and say, even as a believer, some things used to not bother me. Or I didn't think of things as sinful as I now do. And so that's the progressive change that's happening in us, right? Things, even as believers, we've come to a, a better understanding of sin, uh, more acute convictions in our conscience now as we've been walking with Christ longer. And so that's illustrated on the inside by this... Uh, lightning of of the the color of the the yellow on the figure and that's should be happening for as long as we walk with christ god is bringing about a, a transformation in us and we'll we'll talk about that and look at some passages in a second not only are our motives thoughts desires um affections changing inside of us but the practical outworking of those chains, right? What we now do with our physical members, um, the way we talk, you know, gossip less or uh, stop slandering or use uh, less foul language, those types of things. Those are, those are actually things that we're doing with our physical members. So even the outline around this new regenerate man is changing. And what's key to understand about this process that's happening on the inside and outside of this regenerate man is it's radically different from the unregenerate man, right? The, that, that change that's happening. Before, we were in an unmixed condition. You weren't, a little, you weren't mixed with a little bit of bad and a little bit of good, um, most bad and some good. No, you were only always evil continually, right? Inside and outside before God. Unmixed, sinful condition is who we used to be. After salvation, we don't just go from unmixed, sinful to now unmixed, righteous condition because we still sin. Right? So what's, what's in between those two states, that's, that's coming. What's in between the two unmixed conditions, unmixed, sinful condition and unmixed, righteous condition, is this in-between state, this mixed condition where you actually are a little bit of good, a little bit of bad. Maybe some of us are a lot bad and a little bit of good. <laughs> um, if you're uh, like Scott Demarish, you're a lot good and a little bit of bad. <laughs> Scott's, got, Scott's a holy man. <laughs> um, this is, this is what, what we call a mixed condition. We're, we're still in process, okay? Um, so just working a little bit through through the chart, um, let me not lose sight of, of the notes that you're looking looking at. On that uh, second page of your notes, the mixed condition of the regenerate man, 
that's every believer from day one, is characterized by the following things that you see in bold. So the unchanging realities accomplished at regeneration, those things that we uh, just walked through, even the, the benefits at the bottom of your chart in the middle panel, the regeneration event benefits, all of those things are true of, of every believer. The new state that you find yourself in, Christian, is characterized by the unchanging realities accomplished at regeneration. And that will always be true of you. You will always be characterized by these things. Um, you won't fall in and out of them as you uh, increase or decrease in your obedience, as you uh, are successfully obedient or as you falter in obedience. And that's really good for, news for us, right? You think about some of the thoughts you had this past week, some of the ways that you've fallen this past week and sinned. Um, it's a good thing that we don't fall in and out of these things based on our own obedience. In God's immaculate wisdom, he did this and didn't make these things dependent on our own obedience because we would probably lack them more often than we possess them, right? <clears throat> uh, the new identity in Christ it characterizes you as, as a believer. Um, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We read, uh, we read 130 <clears throat> that Christ uh, became to us wisdom and sanctification and redemption. In, in chapter 6, starting at verse 9, Paul has to remind them uh, to not be deceived. To not forget what's true. Verse 9. Or do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Um, and this is convicting even. Because this is in the context of uh, not being willing to be wronged and suing your brother. <laughs> Taking another believer to court when you should act like a Christian and just being be willing to take the loss. Right? Let your reputation and your name be soiled if that's what it takes rather than publicly soiling God's reputation and his glory by bringing another believer to court so that unbelieving judges are like, man, this is what it's like to be a part of the church. Y'all can't get along. Y'all can't reconcile your differences. Um, that doesn't look good on God. So he's reminding them that's where we find ourselves. That's the context of this verse 9 do, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God do not be deceived and then he lists these these types of people these types of uh, sinners fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor effeminate nor homosexuals nor thieves nor the covetous nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers they all go in the same boat None of these people will inherit the kingdom of God that's coming. But then he says, verse 11, such were some of you. You're, that, that is no longer your identity. If you practice any of these sins, once conversion happens, you have a new identity. 
Such were some of you, but something happened. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Um, notice in verse 11, washed, sanctified, justified. You were those things. Who did those things? These, yeah, these are things that were done to you, right? You were washed. It doesn't say, but, but you got it together and you washed yourself. It doesn't say you, you pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps and you sanctified yourselves or you justified yourselves. Your new identity was granted to you. It was accomplished for you. That's just indicatively true. That's just a reality of the new state that you find yourself in. You were, were washed, were sanctified, were justified. Um, that all, all of, just grammatically speaking, that's in a, a passive sense. Those verbs, they're passive, they're not active. Active is you do it, right? The subject does it. Uh, if it was an active sense, it would say you, you washed, you sanctified, you justified, but were, means that it's happening to you. You're a passive recipient of something, not the active player, right? You're not performing the verbs, you're receiving the verbs. So the washed, sanctified, justified is being received by the subject, the you. And that's your new identity. All right, what do you say to somebody who, who struggles with, uh, with any of these things that's been above? Mm-hmm. They see that and they go, I haven't conquered the sin that moved past it mm-hmm. in my own condemnation. And how do you respond to that? Excellent question. Um, two things helpful to, to remember is uh, just to emphasize what we've already said. For that believer who finds himself saying, looking at this text perhaps and saying, how, how, how am I not those things anymore, right? If he finds himself still struggling with with some of these sins or still desiring some of these sinful things, Uh, even the things that's mentioned, fornication, idolatry, adultery, um, being effeminate, homosexual activity, uh, theft, covetousness, uh, drunkenness, reviling, uh, swindling. For that person who finds himself uh, perhaps practically working this, these things out, among maybe all of the things that they should remember, one of the things to remember is that this is an issue of identity, right? God says that you're not those things anymore. God says that's not your identity. Um, and it's, you know, to your, to your question, we have a within evangelicalism today, we have a whole movement of people who want to create a category of uh, Christian homosexuals, right? Or I'm a gay Christian. Um, I'm sure many people in that movement, um, like Gregory Coles, who who wrote the book on it, (laughs) wrote a book on it, um, being single, gay, and Christian, uh, he's not a believer. And he's finding, he's looking for a way to justify his sin. 
And so what this text says actually isn't yet true of him, right? He actually hasn't let go of the old life and embraced Christ and believed the gospel. But I think within that same category, you have some believers who are trying to reconcile that, right? And, and they're trying to find a middle ground by identifying with the old sins and calling themselves gay or homosexual and Christian at the same time. Well, a part of actually conquering the sin is believing what God says about it, about your new identity, rather. Does that make sense? If God says that you're a Christian and not this, that once washing and sanctification and region and justification have happened, you have a new identity, you should agree with God rather than relabeling it, right? So to, for the believer who finds himself maybe still struggling, a part of um, this process that we're talking about is just calling yourself what God calls you. I'm not a homosexual anymore. I'm not, uh, in terms of my identity, a fornicator. Right? I have a new identity. You know, I, I like to think of it also, there's a difference between practicing and occasional sin. Yep. Uh, like, like David did commit adultery, but uh, he, that wasn't his practice. Yeah. And yeah. That's right. Um, and so he was actually able to repent. Right? Which is, uh, you think the again, the just the, the picture is helpful because before you weren't able. You were only always darkness continually. You're actually able to agree with God about the sin, agree with God about self, and not be enslaved to it, practicing that sin any longer. You're actually able to change. Um, a part of, of growing and, and progressing in our sanctification uh, is agreeing with God about our new identity um, and, and believing what God has said about our new ability in Christ. If, if I say, you know what, um, this desire, again, to sort of pick on the, the gay Christian movement, if, if rather than believing God when he says, I'm no longer enslaved to this, if I trust my feelings and say, well, I feel enslaved, so therefore, those passages that say I'm not enslaved must not mean what they seem to mean. They must, maybe I just skip those passages and ignore them in my Bible, and I just trust my feelings rather than trusting God. Well, you'll never find yourself sanctified doing that, right? Um, the, the heart is not trustworthy even as a believer, right? Um, and and that's, that's primarily where the fight for, for growth happens is at the, the level of faith. All of my desires, whatever they are, um, my uh, thoughts, my feelings, my emotions, right? I, I have to choose every moment of every day if I'm going to be obedient to God to believe him rather than believing Whatever naturally comes from me. That, that is what we, call, what we mean when we say heart shepherding. You have to shepherd your heart in the moments of temptation to believe God rather than whatever lie your heart is gravitating toward when you're tempted. Um, and believe what? what? What am I supposed to believe? Well, 
everything that God has said. Um, but to just pick a few categories, believe God what he said about your identity. Believe what God has said about uh, who you are in Christ, about um, the, the benefits of, of salvation. Believe what God says about his own attributes. Believe what God says about you not being enslaved to the sin anymore, Romans 6, right? This is why uh, the, the psalmist in 119 was able to say, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Um, that's a, a statement or a commentary on I'm, I'm inputting things into my soul to believe so that it keeps me from sin. That's, that's uh, one way to describe heart shepherding. So truth actually gives us the content to believe to then walk in obedience. Right? Uh, go, go back to Romans 6. The, the new man is characterized by freedom from slavery to sin. Even starting at verse 1, what shall we say then if grace now abounds even where sin increased? You know, where sin increases, grace conquers it, abounds over it. What should we say then? Is that an excuse? Are we to sin? Are we to continue in sin so that may, grace may increase? And Paul says, may it never be, God forbid. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? If grace has truly abounded, it's abounded to rescue you from sin, from the penalty of it, and the power of it. Right? That's what he says in verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we, so we too might walk in newness of life. As different as uh, Christ was, right, prone to death at one point, raised up to new life in a... a, a indestructible life the believer the believer's life uh, mirrors that in a way new life in Christ rescue, rescues you from uh, slavery to sin from the deadness that you experienced as an unmixed sinful unregenerate man <clears throat> gives you new life uh, so that you can actually walk out that newness of life, if grace has abounded to you. Verse 5, he goes on to say, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self, it was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. So the new regenerate man is characterized by a freedom from slavery to sin. Galatians 5 says that it's char we're characterized by the, the fruit of the Spirit, um, <clears throat> by good works. Ephesians 2.10, we were predestined for them. Titus 2.14, Jesus died to ransom a people zealous for good works. That's why the gospel... Faith in the gospel is inseparable from obedience 
to the gospel. Jesus died for people zealous for good works. Um, people who are saved by God, who believe in the gospel, are also eager to submit to God and obey him. Those things go hand in hand. Um, and then a, just a new ability to obey. You didn't possess this before. This is brand new in the, the new mixed condition that you can now actually obey God from a heart of faith. Um, it's also, though, characterized by a, a proneness to sin, right? Um, you're, you fall into sin so easily, right? The sin that's so easily entangled. That's why it's mixed. <laughs> you're, not also, you're not only, as a believer, zealous to do good works, but you find yourself falling into sin even easily, right? Uh, man, it seems like I more naturally speak harshly than kindly. Or, wow, it was so easy for me to lie in that moment of self-preservation rather than uh, tell the truth and whatever consequences come with it, being willing to accept, right? We're just still uh, prone, prone to sin. The, the new regenerate man, though, even as he's prone to sin, is characterized by ongoing repentance. Um, repentance, yes, happens at the moment, moment of conversion, right? Repent just means uh, a 180 to turn away from what's sinful, what God says is wrong, to turn to him and obedience and truth. That happens at conversion, yes, but that actually is an ongoing process, um, practice, rather, in, in a believer's life. First uh, John, or actually we'll look at a couple passages, flip one book over from Romans to First Corinthians chapter, sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 7. Second Corinthians chapter 7. Probably the most, uh, one of the most thorough descriptions of repentance in the New Testament where Paul has written a couple letters to the Corinthians and now he's encouraged, right? He sent Titus, Titus has come back to him and he's encouraged by the report that the Corinthians are repentant and they've, they've obeyed. <clears throat> In the second Corinthians chapter seven, starting at verse nine, Paul actually rejoices that they were sor sorrowful or grieved. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Uh, just a couple things to note there. As a Christian, the, in this, this new mixed condition, notice that sorrow is a part of this new condition, right? If you never experience sorrow or guilt over sin, then you're not a Christian, right? Um, yes? It's also a function of the Holy Spirit convicting you because before salvation, there's no <clears throat> Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, in, I think, John chapter 
Yep. Yep. Guilt. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to convict the world of sin, right, is is one of the works of the Holy Spirit. So if you're actually convicted on God's terms for God's reasons, uh, for why God says you should be convicted as a as a Christian, if you're convicted for those things, that is evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in you. Um. shame or sorrow or guilt in and of itself isn't sinful uh, if we keep reading we'll see it can be but Paul is rejoicing not just in the mere fact that they were made sorrowful he's not like yes they were uh, they were sorrowful they felt bad I love it when they feel bad that's not what Paul's saying right <clears throat> but he's rejoicing in their sorrow because it uh, resulted in what? Repentance. Yes. Praise God. Not just that they were sorrowful, but uh, their sorrow carried them all the way to repentance. And he even calls it, it was a sorrow according to the will of God. According to God. Um, does God will, does God desire that we feel bad? Well, yeah, about the right things. <laughs> right? <clears throat> it is God's will that you grieve over the right things uh, for the right reasons in the right proportions even right verse 10 for the sorrow that is according to the will of God a, a godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret there's nothing to feel sorry about or regret about the type of repentance that godly sorrow produces. It's a repentance without regret, leading to, or probably better translated, having to do with salvation. This is uh, a sorrow and a repentance associated with salvation. Um, but the sorrow of the world produces death, right? A sorrow that I feel so bad, I'm going to kill myself, i.e. Judas, right? Um, that's not godly sorrow. That's not sorrow that God wills for, for us. But it's a, it's a sorrow, uh, that's a worldly sorrow, um, an earthly sorrow that would produce death. And then Paul tells us in verse 11 and, uh, and on what the signs or the... Uh, the fruit of this godly this godly sorrow, this real repentance actually are. Verse 11. For behold what earnestness this thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves. What indignation. What fear, that is fear of God. What longing. What zeal. What avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. Um, that kind of repentance that is characterized by 
earnestness, vindication, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, avenging of wrong. That is uh, a reason to rejoice. And so that's that's ongoing for the Christian. First um, John one eight and nine. Just read that so I don't so I don't butcher it. This is the practice of the Christian. If we say, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, though, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, that's a, a description of, of repentance, of uh, this confession and turning away from sin, being willing to admit that I've committed uh, the sins that I have. What will God do with a sincere, humble confession? Uh, that is to, to him, certainly, um, to perhaps anyone I should on a, on a human level where he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The person who's willing to uh, admit with God, yes, God, what you say about me and what you say about this sin, it's all true. The person who's willing to admit that, that's what confession is, can trust that God will forgive the sin that he's admitting to and purify him and cleanse him from it as well. So all of these things are um, will characterize someone who has experienced the new birth, who's in that in-between, that mixed condition. Uh, and, and what it requires, the mixed condition of the regenerate man requires those things that you see at the bottom of page two on your notes. It requires God's relentless transformation of the believer, the believer's diligent pursuit of holiness, the believer's weariness um, about in, indwelling sin, and the believer's serious perseverance. All of those things, this mixed condition that we're in uh, they require so God must be the one transforming the believer go to Philippians chapter 2 so flip back Again, uh, Ephesians Philippians Colossians so Philippians chapter 2 Paul says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, do this. Work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. Why? Verse 13. 
For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice in verse 12, who's obeying? Is it God or the Philippians? The Philippians, it's their obedience. You have always obeyed, right? This is something that you've practiced. You, Philippian church, have practiced obedience. Not only when I'm there, but also when I'm not. He tells them to do this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Who is to work out the believer's salvation with fear and trembling? The believer, right? This is incumbent on the believer to do. The commands aren't attributed to God as accomplishing, right? Like the other things that we've looked at already. Right? Because of him, you're in Christ Jesus. That's his doing. You, should, you must obey. You must work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But why? Because who's working? Ultimately, the growth comes from him. Anybody who's able to obey God, who's eager and effective in working out their salvation in the proper ways, doesn't have themselves to thank for it. This is only happening because God is at work in you, is the point. So this sanctification is God's doing. And yes, you have your role to play in it. Um, when I boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, for when I'm weak, he's strong, he's made strong, yeah. Or his strength is made perfect in my weakness, yeah. So Second Corinthians uh, 12. Um, yeah, that's absolutely right. We can, we, can, we can rejoice in the fact that, yes, as God says, we are weak because God's the one, God's the one who's, who's strong, whose strength we're relying on. Yep, that's absolutely appropriate. Um, he's at work in us, both to will and to work, or to do his good pleasure. To want to do it, you're, that's the inner self, right? He's working in you to make you desire it, and not only to desire it and then fail, but he's actually working in you to desire it and to be successful in accomplishing Obedience. You're, if you want to be holy, that's that's God working in you. When you're actually holy, that's God working in you. <laughs> yeah. That's that's descriptive of the mixed condition. Uh, we'll come back to to Second Peter, one maybe we got it. We got to plow. Um, I want to make sure we cover this. The, the believer's uh, weariness about in, indwelling sin, um, being rightly skeptical of yourself is still appropriate. You don't, nothing that we've read so far and discussed would lead us to say, oh man, I'm so much a new creature in Christ, I can trust my heart now. Or I can sit back and relax 
and go on cruise control throughout the Christian life, right? I can rely on my whatever naturally comes to mind now. Nothing that we've read, even though all of these tremendous truths, the amazing change that has happened from who we used to be, unmixed sinful condition to now mixed condition, regenerate man, nothing would lead us to believe that uh, we can look inward now. Even though there might be a lot good happening in you that God's doing, uh, it doesn't change, or, or just remember for a second, we're still in a mixed condition, right? Um, if, if, you're in a, if you're part sin and part holy, part wicked, part righteous, which part of, how do, you, how do you look inward to discern what to trust, right, in you? You still can't look inward. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, obviously a great verse, right? The heart is more deceitful. Actually, let's, let's turn there. It's going to tell us that, it's going to make a, a statement about man generally. This isn't only about unbelievers. This isn't only about Israel. Um, it's not specific to a nation of people. It's not specific to a class of people. But Jeremiah, as he writes, makes a statement that's true about just the human heart. Verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's a statement that's, that's generally true of humanity. Think about, you know, make a list of the hundred most deceitful things that you know of, and at the top of that list should be my heart. Even as a believer, that, goes, that should go at the top of your list. Um, it's it's desperately sick. Uh, there, you know, beyond complete repair, at least in this life, beyond our ability to understand and, and really wrap wrap our minds around, or you know, get to the point where we say, you know what, I've thought about how deceitful my heart is, and I think I got it. I think I have fathom the depths of the deceitfulness of my heart. Yeah, Greg. So, Armory, I agree with that. So when you hear Paul talk in 2 Corinthians about test yourself to see if you're in the cave, examine yourself, how do you do that? Then, just what you just said as far as the heart. Yep. Uh, the, the only way to appropriately uh, test or examine yourself has to come from something outside of your heart. Has to come from truth, not determined by you or that originates with your own thoughts. That comes from outside, from God, right? And that's why we have his word. That's, that is the benefit and blessing of God's word. Um, even on uh, Thursday, right, when we went to Mill Avenue, we're talking to guys and explaining this very thing that... God has accurately diagnosed the problem. The problem is you. 
you're not dependable, you're not reliable. Um, if told to test yourself, what you would do is justify yourself. You have a wrong standard by which to, to test or examine your own self if it's just left up to you. You need truth communicated by someone who knows all truth, which is what Paul, uh, Jeremiah actually says in verse 10. I, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Right? So God is the one who can fathom the depths of the deceitfulness of your heart. And he has communicated to us in a way where we don't have to trust ourselves anymore. We can go to him and say, you tell me what to think about my heart. Right? And he gives us truth and a, a clarity with which to see our hearts. Now, even with your Bible open, go to uh, Psalm 19. Because I love Psalm 19 because David actually talks about the incredible clarity and power of God's word and makes another statement about his own heart, right? We can see our hearts truly with God's word, uh, even if not fully. So here's what he, he says in verse 7. The law of Yahweh is perfect, doing something that creation can't do, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of, of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. Notice that all of those things have to do with the inner self. That God's word is about transforming us from the inside out, right? Restoring the soul, granting wisdom where there is none, uh, causing the heart to rejoice causing the eyes to be enlightened. That's not your physical eyes, but that's how you perceive the world. The fear of Yahweh, again, a synonym for his word, is clean, enduring forever. It never loses its ability or power to accomplish what it must. And the judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. The warnings of scripture are a good thing. In keeping them, there is great reward. And then still, verse 12, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. So again, the word of God, let me say it this way. If you were left to yourself to test and examine, your heart's deceitfully wicked. And if you make the standard your heart, you'll always get it wrong 100% of the time. God's word, truth coming from outside of you, outside of us, allows us to see clearly and accurately what's in our heart, even if it doesn't enable us to see it fully. Right? God's word does all of these things to help us see our hearts clearly. And still, David can ask this question. I, I still, with the amazing clarity that God's word grants, not due to any fault in God's word, but because I'm in this mixed condition, I still won't ever fully comprehend 
the deceitfulness of my heart or fully see all of my errors. Does that make sense? Um, that is why when we talk about shepherding your heart, uh, Matt described it this way on week one. Shepherd your heart with the word of God to get the God of the word. That is what sh heart shepherding is. Coming to the word of God to get the God of the word. If we don't do that, we're hopelessly left to our own devices, to our own deceitful heart. Run from the deceitfulness of your heart every day, every hour, right? By putting truth back in front of your heart. Now, heart shepherding doesn't happen um, only when I have my Bible open. Hey, I shepherded my heart today. I'm good for the rest of the day. I opened my Bible. I read what was there. You know, um, Genesis chapter chapter. 10 genealogies of, uh, of Noah. I'm good. I'm good for the day. There's nothing magical, right, about God's word like that. When you shepherd your heart, that, that means coming to God's word to be reminded of the truth that it's communicating. Just because you have your Bible open doesn't mean you're shepherding your heart. And just because your Bible is closed doesn't mean you can't shepherd your heart. The point is, inputting truth into my mind, into my soul, so that I have things to recall, so that in, throughout the day when I'm wronged by a coworker, a client, somebody I interact with, the truth that I've been meditating on all day since the moment I read my Bible this morning or whenever, I'm believing that more than the lie that tells me to respond sinfully, for example, right? I'm, I'm inputting truth so I have something to believe the rest of the day, right? I'm clinging to, to new truths that I read this morning, years ago, whenever. I'm shepherding my heart with those things so that I am inclined to turn toward the Lord rather than whatever sinful is already in my heart. That's heart shepherding. You're bringing your heart to submit to what God says is true. You're bringing your life in submission to the authority and, and obedience of Christ. And so obviously we need God's word to do that well. And that's, that's really everything happening. I mean, that's the fight that's happening in this mixed condition. Um, we're not all we will be, but there's a, there's a lot good that God has done, and yet there's a progress, there's a process that we ought to be working with God to accomplish in our lives. Okay? Uh, flip to, to 2 Peter chapter 1, and, and hopefully this will make the, the connection between um, the, the two states. 2 Peter chapter 1 is helpful because of where Peter, in his mind as he's writing, He's not just thinking about the present, but he's, he's actually thinking about the future. And because of what Peter believes about the future, he tells us, here's what you need to do in the present. Because these things are, because there's a coming kingdom, here's what you need to be about now. So 2 Peter chapter 1.
just jump down to verse 11. So we'll start at the end of, of Peter's thought. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. That's his like, he's wrapping up a, a point that he's making. Uh, verse 11, 4, right? It's a, he's giving a reason that in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. If you want entrance into this kingdom that's coming, that doesn't end, if you want entrance into that kingdom abundantly supplied to you, where you can confidently walk into, enter, enter into the kingdom that's coming, then you need to do what comes before verse 11. Okay? That's, that's why he's, just again, to tell you what he's going for, there's something that's coming. And because of that future reality, you need to do what he describes in uh, verses 4 and following, or 5 and following. Look at verse 5. Now for this very reason, also applying all dil diligence, that's again our job, all diligence in your faith, do this, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. These are things that we're supposed to be increasing in and practicing right here and now. This is uh, the, the progressive sanctification that we've been talking about, adding these things. Verse 8 says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the one who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent, there's that word again, diligent, to make certain about his calling and choosing of you, for as long as you practice these things, i.e. the things you just described in verse 5 and following me, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. There's a future reality. Um, the kingdom coming. This, uh, what we'll discuss on the right side of your chart. This is coming. The eternal state, who you will be when his kingdom comes, is coming. Therefore, you need to be practicing these things now. In other words, your confidence to enter into the kingdom, the confidence that you want to possess now, that you will enter into the kingdom, that you will be this glorified saint one, one day, will come if you live a holy life now. If you grow in progressive sanctification, the middle panel of your chart, then you, will, you should be confident. You will find that you will be confident. confident. You will have assurance of your, of your salvation and what's coming, that it's for you. 
Does that make sense? The, the rightmost panel, the heavenly man, you'll notice that uh, you've got a few different things happening here, but look all the way to the right, the glorified body. It's even hard to see. You've got to like hold it at the right angle so you can see the inner man is all bright and the external body is all bright. That's perfection reached at the inner level and the external level. Not, the Christian is not only intended to be perfect in soul. Only. God's design, even from the beginning of creation, wasn't just to have perfect, disembodied souls floating around. Right? He made Adam a body, breathed into him, he became a life-giving, uh, uh, a living spirit. God's, in, God's plan for man has always been body and soul. So when this happens, God will give you a perfect inner life and outer life. Everything you think, everything you're motivated by, everything you desire, everything you love, you will do those things absolutely perfectly. And you'll also act perfectly. You'll speak perfectly. Um, You will... Practice everything that you do in an absolutely perfect way. That is glorification. Glorification does not happen until both body and soul are perfected. So in heaven, uh, as long as the first saint who was ever there, Abel, is he glorified? Or sorry, is he perfect? Yep. He's without sin. And he has been for as long as he's been there. Is he glorified? No. Because he still doesn't have a body. And that's that's what is uh, being illustrated here. Is that saints before they're resurrected, before they're given a new body, raised to incorruptible life, like Jesus was when he was resurrected, right? He got a new body, no longer... prone to die the believer prior to that happening uh, doesn't hasn't been glorified so long as he doesn't have a body so that's where all believers old and new testament will eventually get perfect body perfect soul at death death perfects the soul of every